There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace. Really glad to have you here today. And today we're going to talk about another version of collaboration, collective wisdom. Now, in my experience, communities and organizations are confronting increasingly complicated problems that require, um, that sort of defy our current understanding of how to think. They really require us to adapt in ways that are stretch the imagination from what we've had to do in the past. Our current practices don't really work terribly well, and everyone I'm talking to inside organization is longing for some sense of meaning and purpose and commitment, and everyone, every senior leader I speak to is looking for an organization that is collaborative, innovative, global, and inclusive, yet no one knows how to get there. So all of this, I think all those are great goals, and they're all really important goals, never been more important, especially with the complex problems that we, cha- that we face. But it's requiring of us of leaders to involve, evolve in ways we had not imagined. And it also means that no single person is going to have the answer, so that we have got to learn together to access a deeper wisdom, what my guest today is going to call collective wisdom. And that's the focus of the show today, collective wisdom. What is it? How do we do it? How do we avoid the bad stuff? How do we get the good stuff? And how do we achieve all these glorious things that we'd like to achieve? So with me today is John Ott. John is co-founder of the Center for Collective Wisdom, c4cw.org, if you want to look him up. And he leads large-scale transformations in a wide array of communities and organizations. Now, at the heart of all of this is his Leadership for Collective Wisdom framework that he created with his colleague and co-founder, Rose Pinard. Now, John has been a lecturer at Public Policy Studies at Duke University and Associate Director of the Heart Leadership Program, and he's organized and led a lot of nonprofit organizations. Um, John will say a small micro-profit enterprise project and a whole host of things. I've known a number of the community initiatives at 11. They've been quite powerful from some smart start initiatives in North Carolina to some migrant work um, initiatives that are still going on to this day to some powerful work in California systems. Now, he, he talks a lot about communities, but he's also done a lot in corporations as well and bringing communities and corporations together. So John is a co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly, and he's also co-author of Centered on the Edge. So John, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Wanda, and very much looking forward to the conversation. Well, I always know every time we get together is a fabulous conversation. And I should say to all of our listeners that John and I have known each other for quite a few years, and I'm not confessing how many. So at any rate, let's start. Collective wisdom. I love this idea. I love it because it brings a sense of we bring a group of people and we tap the power of what we all know. But what is it and why does it matter in your view? You bet. 
So the first thing to say is that a lot of times when we begin talking about wisdom or collective wisdom, folks can immediately have a sense that this is some esoteric conversation, right? Applicable or relevant to only the few chosen ones. And that's not our orientation at all. Um, Based on the research we've done, based on 30 years of experience of leading large-scale change efforts in lots of contexts, the hypothesis we hold now is that collective wisdom is a capacity of any group. It's a capacity that is available to us whenever two or more of us gather. Um, And what we mean by collective wisdom is a capacity for what we call transcendent knowing that can lead to profound action. Let's unpack that just for a minute, because transcendent knowing immediately, that can sound kind of abstract and esoteric, but we use that phrase very intentionally. When we say transcendent, we mean knowing that's beyond the mind alone, right? The rational ways that we make meaning are vital um, for us, but there are many other ways of knowing in addition to the rational, and it's not to exclude the rational, but it's to acknowledge that there are many other ways of processing and making meaning and discerning together. And the second reason we use transcendent is because it's a knowing that is beyond any one of us. It's a knowing that emerges or arises through the interactions and engagement of multiple ones of us together. Um, And then finally, this definition and this transcendent knowing, it's not, again, simply for its own sake. It's transcendent knowing that can lead to profound action. And in our experience in our, the work that we do, this is a very practical orientation to addressing, as you described, these profound challenges that we face and often don't know how to resolve. In our language, we call those adaptive dilemmas. And in our experience, collective wisdom, when we learn how to cultivate the conditions for it, can help us become much more adept at responding to the challenges that we don't know how to resolve, that we don't know how to engage and move through. Okay, so transcendent knowing, it sounds like um, some enlightenment seminar, but it also sounds equally like, yeah, I need to know more than what I currently already rationally know because that doesn't work. So three components to transcendent knowing, moving beyond the mind alone, the rational thinking alone, to beyond any one person. So it's the thing that emerges with an engagement with multiple people. And three is about profound action. So responding to things that we really don't know how to respond to at this moment in time. Let me go back to beyond the mind alone. You said there are other ways of processing, but what other ways come to your mind? Well, uh, you know, um, uh, we often hear leaders saying, I trust my gut, right? There is a kind of instinctive um, sense of knowing. There are um, a lot of research has been done around emotional intelligence, right? Um, There is the body's way of knowing, right? The ways that um, uh, energy or kind of relaxation can can sense or help us sense that we're on the right track. And sometimes anxiousness or fearfulness can help us uh, sense that there's something amiss, right? So beyond rational knowing, there's the knowing of our body, there's the knowing of our feeling sense, and there's the knowing of our instincts or uh, our sensing that we can't quite put a word to yet, right? Okay. And all of those 
we know anecdotally, all of those know, we know informally, but often when we get into formal meetings, um, we lose touch with those other ways of sensing and making meaning together. Um, and part of our work is actually to create safe spaces where we're not only doing very disciplined, rational work, but we're also accessing other ways of knowing as well. Okay. All right. I'm curious. How do you get people to do that, access these other ways of knowing, and presumably to talk about them, not just to be aware of them? Precisely right. Well, the first, right, um, all of this work starts from um, a why, right? Why would we ever undertake this work? And the truth is, if we're getting the results we want doing what we're doing, why would we change, right? So the circumstances when we are brought in are circumstances where at least senior leaders within an organization or a community or often many more folks in addition to senior leaders have started to sense that we're stuck, right? Have started to sense that we're no longer getting the results that we hope for. And so from that place of we're wanting to achieve something and we're frustrated because we're not able to achieve it in the ways that we thought would work, that begins to open up the possibility that we want to try a different way, right? That we want to engage with each other or with constituencies or with sometimes folks we disagree with because we're clear that doing what we're doing isn't getting us to where we want, right? And sometimes that why can emerge from um, we're stuck, right? Uh, we've, we're facing a challenge and we can't get through it. But sometimes that why can emerge from a really deep longing, right? It's not that we failed. It's not that somehow um, we're not achieving results. It's actually that we've started to imagine a possibility, a hopefulness, a growth in our business or a transformation in our community that we can sense, but we don't know how to get there. And from those places of wanting something that we can't figure out how to get to just by doing what we know opens us to the possibility that there's a different way. And so one of the first things that we do when we start working with folks is we have them begin to reflect on why, right? Why are we in this process? What is the adaptive dilemma? And have them touch into that sense of challenge or frustration or longing. And then we begin to introduce the framework of leadership for collective wisdom as some practical orientations, commitments, and practices that can help us begin to engage with each other differently and access these different ways of knowing. Okay. All right. I like that one. We're going to have to come to that one in a minute. Now, you said an interesting thought in there. So your second point about creating transcendent knowing is this, it emerges from an engagement with lots, with multiple people. It's beyond any one person. And then you just slid in there this phrase about engaging with people we disagree with. You want to expand on that a bit? <laughs> you bet. So, you know, so often um, in groups, we're terrified of difference, right? That, um, and, uh, and in fact, difference can at, at times feel like we're going to quickly descend into conflict, right? And so we try to avoid it at all costs. One of the, actually, uh, uh, one of the conditions that can lead to collective folly, right? Um, for us, particularly in the early stages of engaging with one another, we shouldn't just um, 
tolerate difference. We should actually welcome it. In fact, one of the commitments of collective leadership that we teach is welcome all that arises. And in that, what one of the, the one of the beginning principles we offer is something we call the scallop principle, right? So there are species of scallops that have over a hundred eyes, right? Uh, and we often show a photograph of one, and it, it immediately grosses folks out because they're thinking about this beautiful scallop on the bed of linguine that they're going to have tonight. But um, when you look at a live scallop, you see these hundreds of blue orbs that encircle the scallop. And the reason why they have so many eyes is because they don't move very quickly. And they have to have 360-degree perspective in order to assess, is this food coming toward me? Is this a mate coming toward me? Or is this something that's trying to eat me? Right? You get one of those things wrong, and you're in a lot of trouble. Um, what the scallop principle teaches, that, teaches is that in any group, each one of us is an eye. The whole discerns through us, right? And a corollary to that principle is that when we don't hear from any eye, the whole is at greater risk, right? No one eye on a scallop has the same vantage point on the ocean. So the data that that eye is processing is going to be different for an eye on the left side of the shell than it is on the right side of the shell. Same is true in groups, right? When we bring together our teams or we bring together cross-collaboration uh, and cross-team collaborations, the strength of those teams actually starts from the divergent perspectives that are present. It's when we try to force uniform stories before we've actually worked with the divergent data that groups can get into trouble. So it's not that we're going to wallow in or stay in divergence, but if we don't start from a recognition that we have divergent perspectives and not just tolerate it, but actually welcome it and celebrate it as the strength of who we are, then we can get into trouble. Okay. I love that image of the scallop. I'm not going to have scallops for dinner tonight, though, thank heavens. Um, But it's an important point, this notion that each of us in the group, in any group, is an I, and that if we're not all watching and seeing, then we get into trouble. Don't hear from anyone. And I like this notion of we sort of force a story or a perspective or a conclusion on something before we actually hear what it is the person was thinking and why they were thinking that and where it came from, why it might mean something. Okay, so you've been talking about, um, you know, why we do this work, and you were talking about the principles that it takes, the commitments and practices that it takes in this framework. What are the other conditions that are going to make collective wisdom arise? Well, um Uh, perfectly aligned with why you started this show, right? One of the first commitments that we teach, and it's there are three commitments um, and related practices of self-leadership, and then there are three commitments and related practices of collective leadership. And the first commitment that we teach of self-leadership is to embrace not knowing, right? To recognize that even when we have expertise, even when we know a great deal about the subject matter that we are seeking to lead a team around, that others, we can't know everything that others know. So if we start from a place that the data that I have um, is data that I have, and that often the adaptive dilemmas that we face exceed my capacity as any one individual or even often a team, to understand completely, 
Mm-hmm. Then we start to embrace not knowing, not as a weakness, not as a failure of leadership, but actually as an essential grounding to exercise effective leadership. Right? Okay. One of the ways we make this commitment concrete is we teach the difference between facts and stories. Right? And this is a concept that uh, Crucial Conversations and many other folks have highlighted. We teach it in a slightly different way. Right? Facts are those things that we can verify. Right? Um, stories are the meaning we make of facts. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that we do when we start working with an organization or a system or a community is if there's divergence, if there's conflict, if there's a stuck place and folks are on a polarized, we first begin to assess, are folks stuck about the facts, right? They don't have shared agreement about what the data is. Or actually, do they have shared agreement about the data? but they're actually holding very different stories about that data. And if the second is true, the work is not to um, dismiss any particular story. It's to understand that from a perspective of embracing not knowing, the work is to hold our stories lightly so that I can receive the stories of others and together we can create a next story that transcends what either of us believes or what either of us sees in the moment because we're now engaging with each other. Okay. All right. So that's self-leadership. What about the collective leadership? Sure. So just quickly, the three commitments of self-leadership are embrace not knowing, deepen self-awareness, and strengthen relationships. And when we talk about deepening self-awareness, we don't, you know, in some ways, everyone understands that's a fundamental orientation to, uh, uh, to self-leadership. But the way that we understand this commitment is I'm deepening my self-awareness to become alert to those moments when the space inside of me collapses and I'm actually not able to hold space to hear a divergent perspective. I'm not able to hold my stories lightly and embrace not knowing, right? So deepening self-awareness isn't just an aphorism, right, or an exhortation. There's a very practical orientation to be paying attention to when it's harder for me to embrace not knowing. Strengthening relationships is a commitment, again, everyone would say, of course, relationships are essential to business, any group endeavor. But what we mean by this commitment is that we look to strengthen our relationships, particularly in those moments when you and I are disagreeing, right? Particularly in those moments when we feel very strongly and very differently about an issue. Can I engage with you in a way that both allows us to explore our divergence, but also in a way that strengthens our connections to one another, right? Now, on the collective leadership side, the three commitments are orienting to the whole, welcoming all that arises, and nurture alignment of intention. And again, just with each of the self-leadership commitments, we have particular practices to help folks learn how to orient to the whole, learn how to welcome all that arises, and nurture alignment of intention in an ongoing way. Okay. All right. So it sounds to me that this work, this framework, is a lovely vessel almost, that allows a group with very different experiences, very different perspectives, different values for that matter, to come together and stay together so that there is some constructive discussion and hopefully some constructive relationships that are built out of the part of it. Is that a fair summary? You bet. In service of 
transforming what we're doing in the world for profound results. So it's not just about staying together. It's about staying together so that we're able to achieve the effect or the impact or the results that we hope for. Right. It's not so that we have a lovely circle of fun. It's that we actually do something that we all care about doing. Okay, Okay, John. Um, Fabulous conversation so far. Let me see if I can summarize. There's a lot in this one. But this notion that collective wisdom is not esoteric. It is about the group's capacity to transcend current knowing. I just slid a word in there that you didn't say. And that is move beyond just the rational to all the other ways in which we have a sense of things. That we understand that it's beyond any one single person, but that it's something that emerges from the collective of people coming together. And that it is for the purpose of achieving profound uh, action. The why is either because we're feeling stuck or because we have some vision of something that's possible that we can't don't know how to get to. And then there are three commitments. There are three commitments for self-leadership that I embrace not knowing everything, that I deepen my self-awareness, particularly when I'm in a space where I'm having a hard time hearing from people who have a divergent perspective, and that I strengthen the relationship, particularly when I strongly disagree with people to hold both my point of view and yet to allow a space for them. Then three principles of collective leadership, which is an orientation to the whole group, not to an individual or part or subset, and to welcome all that arises, which I know is whatever happens is whatever needs to be happening, and then nurture alignment of attention. And we're going to come back to talk about those in a minute. So um, with me is John Ott. John's the co-founder of the Center for Collective Wisdom, C4CW.org, and the author, uh, co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of a Collective Folly. And as I said at the start of this, John has achieved some phenomenal transformations with some amazing dissenting people. I've seen some of that, and after the fact, it's, a, it's phenomenal. When we return, I want to talk about the flip side of collective wisdom, which is collective folly and how do we stay out of it. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, 
every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is John Ott. John is the co-founder of the Center for Collective Wisdom, C4CW.org, and the co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. Now, we have just been talking about this notion of collective wisdom, which in John's terms means it's the capacity of any group, of two or more people for that matter, to come together to find another way, something he calls transcendent knowing, and to achieve profound results, particularly in places where you feel like you've tried to achieve something and you're stuck, or in places where you can see a new possibility and can't quite figure out how to get there. And also really, really powerful, as it always is the case, when there are divergent points of view. So there's a little process for that one, which we're just talking about, the commitments of self-leadership and the commitments of collective leadership. Nice little framework. The flip side, though, John, of collective wisdom is collective folly. So explain what this is and how to stay out of it. Sure. So when my colleagues and I were writing this book um, several years ago, it was very important to us that we not just talk about collective wisdom, um, but that we also really talk about and unpack some of the patterns of what we describe as collective folly. And what we mean by that term is a continuum of behaviors, right, from mere foolishness to acts of depravity, right? Because the truth is, while any group is capable of collective wisdom, any group is also capable of collective folly. Right? And one of the questions that really haunted us and that had us engage in um, this 10-year research effort and has inspired a lot of the work that my colleagues do and certainly that Rose and I do is this question, if we have the capacity for collective wisdom, why don't we access it more, right? And why, of, why are we so often more responsible for collective foolishness or worse, right? Becoming enmeshed again and again in these seemingly endless cycles of petty or profane violence, right? That, that question haunted us, and we wanted to write a book that spoke to that pattern as well, because again, so often our experience in groups as human beings is that anything but collective wisdom is arising, so folly, what we mean by folly is this, collect, this continuum of behaviors from foolishness to far worse. And what we began to explore was what are the patterns that give rise to um, collective folly? And there were several that we've documented, and we kind of first summarized them in terms of what we might call two ends of a continuum. And the first is this impulse towards separation and fragmentation. And then there are lots of ways that this impulse arises. 
kind of subtly through confirmation bias, right? That um, this cognitive distortion uh, called uh, confirmation bias that has me looking only for data that reinforces what I already believe, right? Mm-hmm. One of the thoughts when the internet first exploded was that this was going to be so incredibly liberating for human beings because we would have access at our fingertips to boundless sets of information and data from all manner of perspectives. But interestingly, what a lot of the research is showing is because the data is so overwhelming, because there's so much, the way that we often navigate the data is by simply looking for those points of view that reinforce what we already believe. And what that does is that excludes data from my awareness that could help lead to better decisions. And then there's all the way over on the other side of the continuum, polarization, where suddenly you're not a human being to you to me you're not somebody i just disagree with you're another right you're an object you're someone who's not connected um to me at all and there are lots of points along the way in between um this movement towards separation and fragmentation but in all of these points it's me saying that's not me over there and there's another way that uh, collective folly can emerge, and that's through a pattern of false unity, right? And that in this um, a movement, instead of me saying to you, not me, I'm actually saying to myself that I don't belong, right? So I hold a divergent perspective, right? I hold a different idea or I hold a, a different thought about how we should be proceeding in a group, and I silence myself. And I silence it because I'm afraid of being ostracized by the group or I'm silenced because I'm not sure how they're going to view me or respond to me. What happens in those moments is that the group thinks that we're all aligned, we have an agreement, but in fact we're not. There's an experience instead of false unity. And what these two movements have in common is this um, orientation to not me, right? In separation and fragmentation, the other is not me. And in false unity, I've taken myself out of the equation altogether, right? I don't belong. My perspective, my truth is not welcomed here. And in those movements is when the conditions for collective folly can arise. And sometimes it's just stupid decisions, and sometimes it becomes far worse, leading to profound violence, either emotional violence or bullying or tragic consequences like we, some of the ones we've documented in the book and that all of us have lived through. Fascinating. So this, and this goes back to where you started in the beginning, is this bring the move to embrace what the other, the divergent point of view, to make the relationship with somebody who's quite different, and the avoidance of doing that, the separation from somebody who has a divergent point of view, divergent experience, is what creates the conditions for collective folly. Precisely right. We cert- I mean, you certainly have seen this in any number of places. And, you know, you can think about a number of incidents that have happened in the media at the moment that are an absolute representation of this. Um, the Pepsi ad that has gotten more criticism, mm-hmm. you know, bless Pepsi. I think they do a wonderful job in many other ways, but boy, do they miss that one. And the United um, thing that played out on social media with a passenger who's taken off the plane. And you you almost see in those two stories the separation, in some ways benign separation, but the fragmenting away from or the, you know, I didn't even think about that 
person, that perspective, that point of view. Do you agree with those, John, or not? I do. Um, in fact, uh, you know, one of the reasons why most of our work right now is happening in communities um, uh, at the level of city and county um, uh, and regions is because, at least in uh, in this country, right, our national politics right now have become profoundly polarized, right, and mm-hmm. um, the healthcare debate is a perfect example of that. Right, there are right. um, multiple perspectives held by multiple folks along this continuum um, that warrant engagement, right? But our politics is becoming a kind of all-or-nothing dynamic, right? And so rather than engage, learning how to creatively engage divergent perspectives in service of a larger transcendent response that actually integrates and goes beyond the multiple polarized perspectives, we instead move to a zero-sum game, right? Where either mm-hmm. your perspective wins or my perspective wins, and no matter what, that creates either a sense of deep frustration and anger and hostility or a sense of deep withdrawal and hopelessness. And in either case, we're not actually engaging all of us in the enterprise of creating better communities, stronger uh, uh, cities. Instead, we're actually pitting ourselves against one another. Yeah. I, I certainly feel that playing out in the U.S. politics and, and many, many issues. Healthcare is just the current one that's on the press. And I see that playing out in organizations. Um, one of the um, African-American, he actually lives in the U.K., that I spoke to recently says, you know, there's this part of me that you see as a senior black executive, very successful career, but there's another part of me that no one gives a damn about. And it's a part that people don't know and they don't hear and they don't understand. And it's also a part that he chooses on occasion not to share because he doesn't feel anybody wants to share it or cares about it or it belongs for that matter. And there's another example of how that happens from a diversity point of view. Um, You can play that out from a globalization point of view. And I have a client at the moment where this is exactly the issue. Headquarters located in one city and regional offices located in other cities, some of them quite strong, quite powerful, feeling that they don't have enough power within the headquarters office. And then, so what do they do? They separate themselves off in one place or another, or the headquarters separates themselves off in yet another. And they're in that not dangerous decisions, but bad decisions get made on policy and processes. Okay, John, so how do we, how can, can groups learn to avoid collective folly? Is there a process to stay away from this? I don't know that groups can learn to avoid collective folly um, because just like collective wisdom, collective folly is a potential whenever two or more of us gather and we're not always at our best, right? What I do think um, is that we can learn to recognize the signs of collective folly just as we can learn to recognize the signs of collective wisdom arising and become more alert to it, right? In fact, you know, this this conversation about folly is um, complex because at when we first introduce it, we really want folks to touch in to the capacity we have as human beings to do harm, right, in our groups, in our teams, in our organizations, in our communities. But at the same time, um, we want folks to be able to look at this this propensity, this capacity for a collective folly, 
with some lightness, right? Because if we, <laughs> because it can be profoundly demoralizing to recognize what we're capable of at times. And so we actually teach some of the, uh, we've developed a, a parallel framework to leadership for collective wisdom that we call sabotage for collective folly, right? And, and we use uh, clips from Princess Bride and I Love Lucy to illustrate some of the ways that some of the patterns of collective folly can arise within our groups because we have to have capacity to laugh at ourselves, to recognize the capacity, to, to see it, and then to take steps to get out of it, right? Because the truth is every moment of collective folly has within it the possibility of wisdom arising. If we can hold it with lightness, inquire about the patterns and heal and respond and adapt. And similarly, every moment of collective wisdom has the capacity, has the potentiality of devolving into collective folly if we become attached to what is and insist that this is the only way it can be because it's so good right now and then suddenly find ourselves six months later, a year later, five years later in entirely different circumstances and no longer adapting at all, um, but being stuck. So the first thing is I don't think we can learn to avoid it. I think we can learn to recognize it, um, talk about it, uh, and escape from it uh, more quickly and more creatively. And presumably it's the recognition of it and then the return to the collective wisdom that is the escape from it. Precisely right, and the, the 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 habits or the commitments and practices of uh, sabotage for collective folly are the mirror images of the commitments and practices for uh, leadership for collective wisdom. And just to return to um, the executive that you were describing before, it's it's a really important point um, that. One of, the, one of the foundational concepts of leadership for collective wisdom is that, again, whenever two or more of us gather, when we're engaged in really important collective endeavors, there are at least four dimensions of change present. Right? There's our individual interior, our thoughts, our, our motivations, our dreams, our aspirations. There's our individual exterior dimensions of change, meaning our uh, my skill set, my capacities, my public commitments. And then there are group interior and group exterior dimensions of change as well. And one of the things that the Leadership for Collective Wisdom framework is designed to do is to help groups be able to navigate those four dimensions regularly and effectively and appropriately given the context of the work that they're engaged in. And so often the interior dimensions of change are out of bounds, right? We don't engage folks there. We don't engage uh, our employees or our colleagues. We don't engage their whole selves. We ask them to leave so much of them at the door, right? Or when there's been violations of trust uh, within our uh, teams or within our organizations, we don't take the time to really heal from those and make sense of them and just suck it up and move on, right? And so often when we see change efforts get stuck or fail to achieve the results they hope for, it's because they're not tending to the interior dimensions of change. They become so focused on getting the process right, getting the MOU right, getting the computer system in, getting the next thing done, that they've stopped tending to the interior dimensions of change that are essential for us to access and be guided by collective wisdom. 
I um, I know in my own work in coaching people, I find myself doing more and more and more around this interior dimensions, the internal self, the inner self, the inner thoughts and feelings, and find that that is often the break point for people to actually really make substantive progress in their own individual leadership as well as in their group work, their leader, the what the group is trying to achieve. I take heart that there are a lot of people returning and talking about now this need to pause, the need to look inside, the need to be reflective. And I think, I just think, yes, thank heavens, if we do this part well with some structure, with some intentionality, that there's a chance that we will evolve yet again in great ways in our leadership capacity. So I'm really heartened to hear that from you, John. It's fabulous. You bet. And that same that same level of work that you're describing at the individual level is also essential at the group level as well, right? For us to be regularly attending, do we have alignment of intention here, right? Is that what is the quality of trust here? What is, what are the norms? Not what we have on the walls, but what are the norms that really guide how we engage with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Is when we don't do that. Those and that misalignment starts to arise, it absolutely uh, undermines our capacity to be effective in the exterior realms. Okay. All right. There's so much more that we could talk about here, but John, we're at a break point. So with you me bet. today is John Ott, co-founder of the Center for Collective Wisdom, C4CW.org. And the book that we've been talking about is The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. I love the statement that in when two or more people come together to engage with each other, to talk about something that they genuinely care about, there is the capacity for collective wisdom to move beyond what we currently know and understand and find new ways of making meaning and making profound results. But in that same moment, There's the capacity for collective folly, where we see some of the worst of human behavior throughout history coming through, and occasionally just some really bad policy decisions with inside organizations. Now, one of the conditions for that, John has mentioned a couple of times, is this alignment of intentionality, which is a really core part of making the group an effective process. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the alignment of intentionality. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it, and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is John Ott, co-founder of the Center for Collective Wisdom, c4cw.org. And John's the co-author of The Power of Collective Wisdom and the Trap of Collective Folly. I should also mention that John and his co-author are working on a new book um, titled The Leadership of Collective Wisdom, which is really about this leadership framework that we have just been talking about in this process. Now, I want to remind you, collective wisdom is about the capacity of the group to come together particularly when there are different facts, different experiences, different perspectives, different stories, different meanings, and to move beyond that individual separateness, which is the collective folly, into a different understanding that actually moves us into a whole new realm to get unstuck and to see whole new possibilities and achieve phenomenal things. So one of the components of making all this happen is ensuring that groups have an alignment of intention. And John has mentioned this a couple of times. So that's what we want to focus on right now. So John, what do you mean by alignment of intention? Sure. So let me tell a story first just to create a context and then I can... um, uh, uh, unpack that story in relationship to this idea of nurturing alignment of intention. So um, we began working with a mental health system uh, a number of years ago when they had just uh, entered into bankruptcy. So this was an organization that had over 300 employees. They had a $21 million budget. Um, they served, uh, they were essentially the only major mental health provider in three uh, cities and three communities. And over the course of six months, um, they went from over 300 employees to less than 50 and a budget of from more than 21 million to less than 5 million. They went into bankruptcy. Um, and because they qualified for uh, resources, uh, state resources through the Mental Health Services Act in California, they invited us in um, uh, because they wanted to do a strategic planning process to be able to get money from the state, which would get them out of bankruptcy. And we said, we, we really understand the intention, but we have to understand what happened here uh, first before we can do that. And so we spent six months doing lots of interviews with staff members, with board members, with families who had been served by the system, with families who are being currently served by the system, with lots of community stakeholders. And one of the things we discovered very quickly was that um, there was no longer an alignment of intention among these multiple stakeholders. And the bankruptcy had not only exacerbated that lack of alignment, it had actually deepened profound experiences of mistrust across these multiple stakeholders. What we mean by intention is, it's, and one way you can understand intention is the life force that gives rise to a group, right? 
the cohering of intention. And there are three sources of intention. There's individual intention, there's collective or group intention, and there's higher intention. What's our larger purpose? What's the larger calling for this undertaking right now? And what we discovered was, as we did these conversations across these multiple constituencies within this mental health system, was that over the 20-plus years of their uh, of this system being in place, 30 years, different constituencies had developed very different understandings of what the focus of this system was, what its priorities should be, and how it should engage with the community. Staff had become really divorced from even uh, um, the board's intention, much less many community intentions. And so the board, wanting to solve this issue, um, because this, the, the bankruptcy was only the last uh, uh, iteration uh, of this misalignment, when conflicts had arisen in the past, what they had done was they had fired the executive director four times. Um, and when we discovered that, you know, you fire one executive director, okay, bad luck. Um, you fire two executive directors, really bad luck. But if you fire four, the four previous executive directors, there's something much larger going on. And again, what we discovered was this profound misalignment of intention. And so the work that we did that started in the subsequent six months and then took a number of years was starting a conversation with elected officials, with board members, with community leaders, with, with people who were depending upon this system for service, as well as with staff and others. And the first question that we asked was, do you want to save this? Because they had an option of actually just letting it die and letting a larger system from uh, the neighboring county take over. And their response was, no, this is important for us to create. And so we took multiple months to help these various stakeholders and constituencies hear from one another, learn from one another, and ultimately develop a new mission and orientation for the organization. And, in, and more importantly, uh, a a deeper story for how to partner with community in promoting the mental and behavioral well-being of its citizens. Fast forward now, the organization has a $16 million budget, over 160 staff, and most importantly, understands its role within the community in a profoundly different way. Um, so this, again, this isn't just an esoteric or an abstract conversation. The conversation started with an organization being in bankruptcy and constituencies being livid and outraged by one another. And now, a number of years later, it is um, a really beacon for innovation and community partnerships uh, in Southern California. I love that, you know, each constituency. So first of all, I want to make two comments about the story. It's clear that an misalignment of intention is really a disaster for any organization, regardless of the size of the place, even a small organization. You can see that in the story, and I certainly see it every day in my clients. What I find fascinating is that you get called in to do what we know how to do in running a business, which is to run a strategic planning process and to create a new strategic plan and a new budget and roll out yet another structural thing. Or to fire an executive director and hire another one and that will solve the problem. 
And instead, your focus is not to talk just to the staff and the board, but to talk to a host of people, lots and lots and lots of people, and bring all of those voices to the table in order to understand what is really, and it's not an us versus them, it's a collective, if I can use that word again. Mm-hmm. That's exactly Fabulous. right. Um, uh, and one other nuance about this is that for us, intention, there are three, there are not only three sources of intention, um, individual, group, and higher intention, but there's also three dimensions of intention, and they are our highest aspirations, our self-interests, and our shadow or unknown interests, right? And those different um, dimensions of intention are present within each one of us as individuals. We have our highest aspirations. We also have our self-interest. And we also have shadow or unknown interests that we need others to help us see sometimes. A lot of times in large-scale change efforts, even within organizations, but certainly in communities, you know, what folks say is you have to leave your self-interest at the door, right? Because we're here for our highest aspiration. And Uh, Our invitation is exactly opposite, right? We absolutely want to nurture alignment among our highest aspirations, but our experience is that when we create alignment between our highest aspirations, our self-interest, and our shadow or unknown interests, that's when there's real depth uh, and power of focus and achievement. And so, but to do that requires that we create safe spaces where folks actually feel that they can share their self-interest without being shamed or ostracized and can actually discover together what some of their shadow or unknown interests are in ways that can be of help to the group or that they can let go of because they're committed to the highest aspiration that we've all said yes to. Right. It's, again, that in that notion that we're not going to just sweep it under the curve, carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist, like conflict. But there we're going to have techniques and strategies and ways of bringing it to the surface because it's the real stuff that's keeping us stuck, if you will. Okay. Um, the other thing that strikes me about this, we only have a couple of minutes before we're closing, mm-hmm. is that it took time. This is not a two-month planning process. Mm-hmm. This was a two-year process, if I heard your story correct, mm-hmm. to get to a place that was more constructive. And I find way too often we're too rushed by the next quarter not to recognize the long-term game. You bet. One of the ways we talk about this is, you know, the Greeks had two words for time, right? Their first word was chronos, right? And that's the time, that's the sense of time we're all familiar with, right? Our 60-second minutes, our 60-minute hours, there's never enough of, But they had a second word for time that was kairos, And what they meant by kairos was the experience of time beyond time, the sense of timelessness, the sense that everything is present right here for us to access. Um, And often in our culture, right, we think of those as polar opposites, right? You can either be in Kronos, that's where we live, and then if we need kairos, we go away to a retreat, right? Or uh, Or we have our faith practice, or for some of us, we do retail therapy, right? But... Um, our experience is that the invitation for us is to learn now as human beings in communities and organizations how to access Kairos in the midst of Kronos. Wow. So that right now, learn how to connect deeply to that which is most wanting to unfold through us 
in the midst of the day-to-day responsibilities that we hold. And that's what we teach, and that's what we see. We're blessed to see folks learning how to do this every day. Okay. John, powerful statement, and unfortunately we're out of time to pursue it any further. So with me today is John Ott, Center for Collective Wisdom, C4CW.org. I think what's most fascinating to me about this is that there is a process, a vessel, that can allow us to achieve far more profound things than we have seen thus far, uh, applicable to any community organization or corporation. Join us next week um, for Ernie Gundling, and we're going to talk about global teams. And, John, thank you for being with us. Truly delightful. Wanda, thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.